You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 4, Console Copiers. Hello and welcome to episode number 4 of You Don't Know Flack. Our regular listeners out there may have noticed that we skipped a release two weeks ago. Uh, That was actually for a couple of reasons. Number one is I suffered a fairly major server crash here at the house, which is um, uh, where my website is hosted and where the the files are hosted. And so uh, when I... The time I had set aside to record the latest podcast actually um, went to uh, restoring server backups and running around and trying to get uh, uh, my server back online. So um, that was one reason. And then another reason was last weekend uh, was OEGE, or the Oklahoma Electronic Games Expo, which is a a first-time event that took place here in Oklahoma and several of my Friends from Digital Press and um, other online friends of mine came from uh, multiple states to attend OEGE. And also, uh, we had an after party here at my house, which consisted of uh, playing games and trading games and talking about games and uh, all that kind of good, uh, fun stuff. But unfortunately, that also took up a weekend, which was uh, the other time that I was going to record this podcast. So unfortunately, the podcast didn't get recorded until right now. So uh, that's why we're late, but we're here now. And uh, this episode of You Don't Know Flack is going to be dedicated to console copiers. So uh, we're going to talk about console copiers this week, those little devices that... um, uh, everybody's always interested in them. When people come to my game room, they that's one of the things that um, I get a lot of questions about because they're fairly unique pieces of hardware. Not a lot of people um, own them or uh, you know know what they are, familiar with them. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about this week, console copiers and uh, my personal experience with console copiers. So let's go ahead and get started. The early days of video game consoles, by early days, I'm talking Atari 2600, um, Nintendo, Sega Master System, that era, uh, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, didn't have to deal much with piracy. And especially they didn't have to deal with piracy at the level that home computers were dealing with. Software developers on home computers were constantly engaged in a cat and mouse battle with computer pirates who uh, basically wanted software for free. Um, Now, there were uh, different motives for uh, computer pirates, but, you know, some people uh, broke copy protection just for the challenge of breaking it. Some people, you know, did it uh, because they thought software prices were too high. Uh, But whatever the reason was, the the end result was the same, is that um, uh, software was copied and passed among friends instead of being purchased. That wasn't really a problem with the uh, early video game consoles. 
One of the things I wanted to talk briefly about this week is the idea of security through obscurity. Um, security through obscurity, the, the, the best real-world example that, uh, that I'm familiar with that kind of explains security through obscurity is um, the idea of hiding the key to your front door of your house under your welcome mat. So you have, uh, you know, when you lock your front door, you have security. And by hiding the key, you have obscured the method in which to open the front door. So that is security through obscurity. You have obscured the key from the regular person who walks up to the front door. The problem with security through obscurity is that it never works uh, because by its nature, uh, the key to get into the front door in our example can be found. And eventually, uh, people will dedicate themselves to finding where that key is. And once the key is found, uh, then the door is easy to open. The other problem with security through obscurity is it only takes one person to find the key. That person will tell all their friends where the key is, and now people can come and go into your house uh, whenever they wish because uh, the location of the key is no longer obscure in our example. So um, the early days of – well, there, there are several examples of security through obscurity not working. There's a great article called um, The 17 Mistakes Microsoft Made in the Xbox Security System. Uh, go Google that title. Go look for 17 Mistakes Microsoft Made in the Xbox Security System. Uh, and there are some great examples in there of obscurity through uh, security through obscurity. One of the examples is uh, there was part of the encrypted code that uh, Microsoft was using to um, basically secure the Xbox. And um, it was hidden really, really, really well. But uh, eventually people, you know, figured out where that code was being stored. And that was uh, one of the ways that the security for the original Xbox was uh, unraveled. But anyway, um, there is a subset of security through obscurity um, when it comes to computers, and it is called security through minority. Uh, and that concept is similar, um, but the idea is that um, you have security because you have something that not many people have. Uh, in our in our key example for the front door of a house, let's say that um, uh, you hang that key from the top of a ten foot tall tree, and so now only people that have the ability uh, to you know climb a tree per se, or maybe that are ten feet tall that have stilts, can get to the key. So now you have security through minority. You've limited access uh, based off of uh, a very small select group of people that have a special tool. So in the early days of video game consoles, the main type of security uh, that existed was security through minority, and that was the ability to um, dump cartridges or make cartridges to burn um, chips or, or uh, EPROMs. And that was something that not very many people uh, had access to the equipment or the knowledge to be able to do. And um, in fact, it was such a uh, small threat that companies, uh, you know, video game console companies weren't worried about the average person dumping cartridges. Uh, the only security that went into that was. Uh, well, region control, which is um, something that we still fight today, but they were more worried about other companies uh, taking their their um, programs and disassembling the code and figuring out, um, uh, you know, maybe their, their programming secrets. Uh, 
by looking at what they were doing. So that that was the big concern. It wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't worried about people actually copying carts. I don't know that that, that ever entered their mind. Um, and, you know, in the early days, there were, uh, there, there are actually, there were flash carts that date all the way back to um, the Atari 2600. They're not flash carts like what you probably think of today. And obviously, um, you know, more they were more like you know EEPROM burners that you could take chips and put them into cartridges and and um, do things like that. They were really expensive and and um, somewhat complicated to use. So it wasn't like today where like a a Game Boy or a, a DS flash cart where you could just you know download a game and and copy it over and plug it in and have it work. Um, so um, really, my interest in console copiers. Does it come around until um, the mid '90s? And it wasn't through console copiers, but it was through um, emulators. And uh, there was a an emulator I remember called INES, which was the first. Um, I don't know if it was technically the first uh, Nintendo emulator for the PC, but but it was the first one I'd ever seen. And um. You know, so that there's this, um, there, there had, there had been emulators around before, um, but not like piece, you know, totally software driven emulators that played console games. That was kind of a new idea. Um, you know, there were, you know, I remember back, um, uh, on the Apple, like there were cards that you could buy, um, for your PC that you could plug this card in and it would let you emulate, um, the Apple hardware so that you could play at, you know, you could even copy Apple discs on your PC. So the concept of emulation wasn't necessarily brand new, but usually it involves some sort of hardware. So being able to, you know, just download this thing and play Nintendo games on your PC, uh, that was a pretty novel idea. And, um, you know, it didn't work great. Now I think I was running, let's see, um, this was probably back like with a, um, we're talking a 486-100, a DX4-100 here at this point. Um, I, I seem to remember that that I had just installed 95. So, um, you know, it was probably even before that. Um, but, you know, regardless, that that's around the era. We're talking late 94. Um, uh, so, you know... Uh, now that there's these emulators, there becomes this uh, interest of how do you get ROMs uh, to run on these emulators? ROMs being, you know, software disk images, disk dumps of cartridges. And there had to be a way to get these cartridges onto your PC so that you could play them uh, with emulators. But I didn't really know how that was being done. Uh, so in late very late 94 in fact um new year's eve 1994 i attended uh hohocon which was um a hacker convention put on by uh the it was co it was hosted by i think it was actually thrown by a guy named um drunk can i say this his name was uh drunk fuck actually and um uh or drunk fucks it's with an x and um uh, it was co-hosted by the Cult of the Dead Cow. And I saw many very interesting things at uh, HoHoCon. 
you know, I was, I've always been interested in, um, uh, hacking and, you know, computer hacking and, and figuring out how things work and computer security. But when I went to HoHoCon, uh, I instantly realized that basically everybody there was smarter than me. Everybody at HoHoCon was doing, uh, just these insane projects. You know, I, we watched, um, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was pretty early, I guess, for um, cell phones. And there was a guy there that was showing um, how to grab, you know, security ESN numbers from cell phones and reprogram cell phones on the fly, which is, um, uh, you know, which is uh, kind of a neat trick. And there was all different kinds of like technical presentations and people just showing off, um, you know, weird things that they'd built or whatever. And one of the things I remember seeing was uh, a Super Nintendo that was hooked up to a projector. And these guys um, in between speeches were playing games on it. But I noticed that the games weren't in cartridges. The games were being loaded off of a floppy disk. And so um, I I never talked to the guys uh, that had the copier. But I sat there and just watched them, you know, watched what was going on. And I kind of gathered that uh, this was, you know what people, what I'd heard referred to as a console copier. They were also called, um, backup, you know, backup devices, I think, but console copier is the, uh, is the verbiage that stuck. But the idea of a console copier is, uh, twofold. It does, it serves two main functions, uh, as far as cartridges are concerned. Number one, uh, well, a console copier is, is a external device that plugs into, uh, a console, usually, well, they're all um, cartridge-based consoles. So this device plugs into the console, and then you can plug a cartridge into the device. So the device sits between, you know, the console itself and the cartridge, where the cartridge plugs in. And then the device also, the majority of these devices also include, um, well, they include some sort of uh, media loading system. The early ones were all floppy disk based, but later on uh, we'll see some that have zip uh, zip drives in them and then eventually CD-ROM drives. So, But the idea of this device is twofold. The first idea is that you can put a cartridge into it and dump the contents of this cartridge onto some you know, form of storage media. I'm just going to say floppy disk for right now. So, um, you could take a super Nintendo game, plug it into the top of this and save that game onto a floppy disk. Um, if the game was too big to fit on a floppy disk, then it would actually span it across uh, multiple disks. So, uh, that's, that's the first thing. So, you know, all of a sudden it becomes clear. Oh, that's how they're, you know, getting these games that they're using for emulators. But the other thing that you could do with a console copier is you can remove that cartridge, you can load that game back into the console copier, and you can play it on a real console. Uh, and that was um, probably just as interesting to me uh, at the time because, you know, like I said, emulation on my 486 was not very good. But emulation, I mean, you wouldn't even really call it emulation. You could play these games on a real console and they ran at real speed. It was just like, um, you know, it was the same code. So it was just like you were interesting or inserting a cartridge except for you were loading it, you know, off a diskette. So, um, you know, now these days on the internet, I'm sure you could go out and type in, um, you know, uh, find a torrent or whatever for a complete collection of, let's say Atari games. In fact, I got one uh, a few years back, 
and I want to say zipped up it was about three meg. So you know you click this button, uh, you click a link somewhere, and you download every Atari Twenty Six Hundred game that's ever been commercially released, and you can download it in about forty five seconds. But back in the BBS days, things didn't work that way. Uh, you know, you were in the the midst of these consoles' uh, lifespans, and they were constantly releasing games, and so each game would be its own release. Uh, you're talking about BBS, you know, dial-up times, uh, maybe 2,400 baud during this time, maybe 9,600, but for the most part, um, uh, you know, pretty slow speed. So, and of course, console games aren't aren't huge. But you're still dealing at one game at a time. But, you know, I'm seeing these files being traded and, and uh, back and forth, these the ROMs uh, from cartridges. And so this, you know, seems pretty interesting to me. I get home from uh, HoHoCon, and now it's the spring of 1995, and I've decided that I want to own one of these console copiers. I think this thing is really cool. And uh, the only way to get one is, uh, you know, obviously to find someone who's selling them. It's not like you can, you know, go to, uh, you know, Walmart or Best Buy or something and pick one of these things up. I mean, uh, console copiers are pretty much being made like, as I described, they're being made and sold in the back alleys of Hong Kong. And, um, you know, as a, a kid and growing up in the Midwest, in the middle of Oklahoma, I did not have any contacts to uh, the back alleys of Hong Kong, you know, so... Uh, I actually, I did eventually find a BBS and I found, um, someone who knew someone, uh, who had an email address. And I mean, this is the really, for me, you know, one of the first things I ever did, um, on, you know, the internet, or I should say on the uh, World Wide web, I, I got online, um, I started using the internet in the fall of 94, but I really didn't experience the web until like March of 1995. And so, um, you know, I get this email address for a guy who went by, well, Anthrox, uh, who was associated with Fairlight. And I find out they're selling, um, Super Nintendo console copiers. So, uh, I emailed him and, and found out that, uh, uh, they had one left. They told me that, um, uh, they were getting out of the console copier business, but they had one left. And if I wanted, it was mine. And so what I had to do was, get a money order for $300 and mail it to them. And I could have this console copier. Now, if you, if you think about this at the time, you know, in 1995, I'm like 22, you know, I, well, I haven't even, I'm 21. I haven't even turned 22 yet. So I'm 21 years old. Uh, I'm working at Best Buy. Uh, $300 is a lot of money, uh, you know, for something that's going to allow you to play free, you know, video games. And on top of that, I, you know, I'm going to get a money order and mail it to somebody somewhere who's going to send me something eventually that's going to come from Hong Kong. I mean, so this has bad idea written all over it, you know, but I was so desperate to get one of these. It's that, that's um, what I did, you know, and I had actually looked around for different um, models of console copier and the Super Nintendo files that I had seen being traded on BBSs. Uh, all had the file extension of SWC. Uh, SWC stood for Super Wildcard, which was the copier that I had ordered, was a, a Super Wildcard DX. So, you know, I thought, well, that must be a really good one. And so um, I did go ahead and order it. And, I mean, it took a long time to get here. I mean, 
it took long enough that I, of course, I was nervous anyway about, um, you know, you're ordering this thing that's probably illegal, um, and you're sending this large amount of money to somebody who you know as Anthrox, you know. So, like I said, uh, you know, everything inside me said that this is probably a bad idea. But the console copier did arrive, um, and it worked exactly as advertised. Um, I mean, I fell in love with it immediately. Hooked it up uh, to my Super Nintendo, and you know, for the first time, I could, uh, you know, take my cartridges and dump them to floppy disks and play them off a of floppy. Which, you know, let's be honest, that part of it is not. Uh, I mean, that's probably the least exciting thing that one would do with a console copier. Why would you want to play games that you already own off a of floppy um, when they're exactly the same as playing them off a of cartridge, except for it takes longer to load? But um, once you had those things on floppy, you could do things with them. You could, um, you know, go look at the code. You could actually, uh, the Super Wildcard had things where you could search code and you could look for the variables where things uh, were being held, like however many, you know, men you had, and, and you could edit those variables and actually edit the gameplay. And then there was, uh, like I said, since this was the same format that people were using on emulators, you could, uh, you know, get on BBSs or soon thereafter on websites and download any, you know, Super Nintendo game I wanted. I could download those, put those on a floppy disk, and then put them directly into my Super Wildcard and play them on a, you know, real Super Nintendo. And that's, for me, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably more pro- uh, emulation than I am against emulation. I, I don't mind emulation. I know people have hangups, um, over emulators and stuff. And I realize that it's not the same as, as playing the real thing, but it, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some people. But, um, you know, playing these ROMs on a real console, on a console copier, it is indistinguishable from the real thing. It, you know, it is the real thing. And uh, so I, I enjoy that more than I enjoy emulation. Like I said, I'm not anti-emulator. I know some people, you know, are really against the whole thing. But uh, but anyway, so uh, um, so I started, you know, getting on these websites and stuff. And if there were games that I couldn't, uh, you know, find online to download or find on a BBS or there was a game that someone was wanting, I would go rent the game. And, you know, rent the game and get it home and, and dump it to disc and, um, you know, then return it. And then I could take that and upload it and, and trade it for, you know, maybe other games that I wanted or something. But uh, but that's how I got started with, with console copiers was with the Super Nintendo Super Wildcard. Um, and the, this is like, like I said, this is 90, um, 95 or whatever. And, uh, uh, you know... After the Super Nintendo, the next thing I got, I believe, was a uh, was the Sony PlayStation. And of course, um, you know, once you get to CDs, the, there's no need for console copiers anymore. That's when you start getting into uh, mod chips or other you know types of devices. But um, uh, it, it wasn't until um, I didn't get a Nintendo 64 until probably. Gosh, uh, 98 or 99, uh, I actually got the Nintendo 64 that I got, um, uh, came with, uh, Pod Racer. It was the Pod Racer, you know, package. Uh, so I got the Nintendo 64, um, uh, in the Pod Racer, uh, the Pod Racer package. 
and I, you know, I I remembered the Super Nintendo um, console copiers, and so I started looking around for Nintendo sixty four console copiers. I thought, well, you know, it's it's cartridges, so maybe there are copiers out there, and there were. In fact, um, there were three major Nintendo sixty four copiers, and um, the first one. It wasn't the first one, but the first one that I found was one called the Z64. It's also called the Mr. Backup. Um, but the the Z, it's easy to remember because the Z in Z64 stands for zip. And um, the, the Z64 actually uses zip disks to store its games on. So um, uh, other than you know it being a, a larger type media, which makes sense because Nintendo 64 games were obviously uh, bigger than, than Super Nintendo games, uh, but you could, um, you know, do the exact same thing. Put cartridges in, dump them to zip disks, and then play them directly off these zip disks. And you could probably store anywhere from four to eight games on a zip disk. Uh, and then you could do, like like on the Super Nintendo, you could get those ROMs, uh, you know, off the internet and then copy them to zip disks and play them uh, on the real hardware, you know. And, and so I, I got back into it a little bit with the Z64, uh, there were two, well, there were actually, there's the the V64, which is probably the most uh, famous or infamous copier for the Nintendo 64, uh, made by Bung. And there's also a V64 Junior, which was um, kind of a cross between a console copier and a flash device. Um, and then the other one was called a CD64 which by its name, um, you can probably guess, has a CD-ROM drive instead of um, you know using zip disk. The V64 uh, also has a CD-ROM drive, and so uh, you know, I, and I actually own all three of those now. I own a V64, a, a Z64, and a CD64, and um, you know, I, I I like console copiers for more than just blatant piracy you know i mean that's what a lot of people did they had them and that's all they did with them but for me it was more about um, being able to dump the code you know because as someone who has always enjoyed you know programming and and disassembling things uh especially software it's always been fun to me to be able to take this cartridge because you know cartridge is like this kind of mysterious thing like you know there's a game in there but you know how do you get the game out how do you get that information out and put it on your computer and, um, you know, with a console copier, you can do that. You can take this cartridge and dump it and, you know, see its guts and, and go through this, you know, code. And I mean, don't get me wrong. A lot of it, you know, doesn't even make sense to me, but just, you know, the ability to look through that stuff, uh, is kind of interesting. And once you get to the, the CD based consoles, they kind of, they start losing that. I mean, when you have a device, you know, you can't write, um, to CDs with these things like the CD 64, um, now, some of them do have parallel ports, which you could connect these to your computer and, and dump things this way. Honestly, I've never got that to work. Uh, I mean, I know it can be done and I've seen it done, but it just doesn't seem worth the hassle. And, and obviously, as you know, computers get newer and, and parallel ports um, are slowly um, becoming a thing of the past, uh, they, they kind of lose that feature. So whenever you look at these devices, the way they're set up, you know, they have really easy to navigate menu systems and they're made to put in a CD and you can put in a CD of, you know, a hundred games on it or whatever. Um, you know, the intention becomes more clear with these that, 
it it's just kind of obvious that these are made to play copied games and they're not made to you know disassemble stuff or or dump cartridge code or anything like that so the cd ones uh kind of lost a little bit with me now there was um one other copier that i had uh originally which was called a multi-game hunter an mgh which um is not my favorite copier uh it was um the the selling point of the multi-game hunter is each of these console copiers has a way that they connect to um, the console, the host console, like the um, Super Wildcard plugs into the top, you know, the cartridge port of where the Super Nintendo goes. And so obviously that connector looks like a Super Nintendo cartridge. And the Multigame Hunter has interchangeable um, bases, if you will, that you can interchange these. And so it can plug into either a Super Nintendo or a Sega Genesis. And so mine, I've always, I've just have it permanently set up uh, as part of my Genesis setup. And it, it does, you know, its job. It, it dumps carts and I've actually dumped, um, a few prototype carts with it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it works well. The biggest problem, you know, it's kind of flaky is one of the problems is it's this really big and large and the way it plugs into a console is kind of weird, um, and you know, a lot of these use kind of, uh, funky or proprietary floppy drives. And so, you know, that's another thing that I'm always worried about. You know, if, if that thing goes out, you're going to have to find a, a vintage, uh, floppy three and a half inch drive, uh, to replace, you know, so the multi-game hunter is okay. And, and it does some cool stuff, but, um, uh, and multi-game hunters, when they originally came out, were sold for a little over $500, which is crazy if you think about it. But, you know, then again, uh, you know, the ability, it was like two copiers in, in one package. So, uh, you know, I guess it's worth it for, for those type of people. I didn't pay anywhere near that. I bought a boxed one um, probably around 2000 Um I mean the year, not the price. Uh, around the year 2000 and I probably paid maybe $150 for it. Um, because it was boxed, you know, a loose one will probably sell for around a hundred dollars. Uh, and over the years, uh, I've probably collected another half a dozen console copiers. Um, you know, I've, I set myself up with like the super wild card is by far um, my favorite for the Super Nintendo. So I have picked up uh, some from other companies like the Pro Fighter and the UFO, and I own those. But, you know, the Super Wild Card is, is my favorite, and that's the one that stays hooked up all the time. So I've I've bought, like I said, probably five or six more over the years um, just, uh, you know, to have them for the collection just because I think they're interesting. But I don't, um, uh, you know, I don't use them on a regular basis. Um, and so, you know... To kind of wrap up the conversation about console copiers, people ask me, um, you know, well, what happened to consoles copiers? Like, where did they go? And there are really, you know, a couple of different answers to that. The first one is obviously for, you know, home gaming systems, uh, cartridge-based systems went away. I mean, the Nintendo 64 with that, when it, uh, you know, when it was phased out, everything went CD-based. And so uh, for CDs, now, uh, you know, there are mod chips and that's kind of, so mod chips are kind of the spiritual, I guess, successor to, uh, console copiers in a way. I mean, really, uh, you know, mod chips are more just about playing pirated games. They're not about 
dumping uh, cartridges per se, or you know, dumping CDs. So, uh, but you have mod chips, and then the other thing that happened with console copiers was um, Nintendo sued Bung Enterprises, which was the maker of the V sixty four, and there had been uh, you know lots of like I said, lots of um, uh, back and forth lawsuits and threats between game companies and um you know the makers of these things uh bung uh you know bung actually sold the v64 and the v64 junior as cheap um dev systems and there were a lot of people that were using those because um you know nintendo to get a development nintendo 64 system was so expensive and uh difficult to you know get that you could you know they they sold these console copiers is saying, Hey, you can develop your own code and test it on a, on a real Nintendo 64, you know? Um, but Nintendo didn't buy that. And so they filed a lawsuit against bung enterprises and, uh, they won. And as part of the injunction, bung enterprises was forced to, uh, close their doors and to stop selling anything related to, circumventing Nintendo's copy protection. They also won um, about seven, uh, I believe it's $7 million in damages against Bung Enterprises. So that pretty much forced um, Bung Enterprises out of business. So you have number one, the consoles, you know, changing from cartridge to CDs. Number two, you have this lawsuit against Bung, which pretty much scares everybody else out of business as well. Um, And then the third thing is, we see this uh, advance in technology and things basically move to flash-based systems. So uh, as far as if you look at, you know, all the handheld gaming things uh, like Game Boy Advanced, um, uh, Nintendo DS, you know, they all um, move to flash-based cartridge systems. And that's, you know, kind of the route that things took now. And, And again, you know, um, those things, they're not really the same as console copiers because console copiers had that whole thing that allowed you to, you know, dump games and look at code and alter code and get the sprites out of games and all those sort of, uh, little fun features and, you know, flash carts and mod chips and stuff. They don't really offer those same things. I mean, basically they just let you, you know, play copied games, which, I mean, if that's what you want to do, then, you know, they work well, but they don't give you all those other kind of neat features that give you a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of, you kind of felt like you were doing something neat uh, back then, you know, by, you know, disassembling stuff and, and you don't, don't, uh, really get the same feeling with that. But anyway, um, but that's kind of, uh, I guess that's my basic history with console copiers. Um, you know, I've had them for, gosh, I've been playing with them since 95. Now I saw that first one in 94, and, um, uh, I think that I bought one last year. I don't remember. I think it might've been one of the UFO copiers. So I still um, play around with them and stuff. They're, they're kind of neat. And they're always, um, they always get a lot of questions when people come over to the game room, uh, and see these, you know, big giant things sitting on top of consoles that they don't recognize. So, uh, but anyway, that's, um, that's console copiers. So, uh, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and cut off episode four here. Uh, before episode five launches, I think that I'm going to close the doors on tech.robohara.com. Uh, it's kind of just a duplication of effort really. And so I think what I'm going to do is close that. I'm going to roll the podcast over to 
just, I'm going to relocate it to robohara.com and, um, uh, you know, not basically nothing will change. I'm just going to combine, uh, that subdomain with the regular domain. So, um, uh, I would expect to see that, um, before the release of episode number five. Uh, and speaking of episode number five, um, I don't know what it's going to be about, but I can tell you two different things. Um, number one, I may be talking about, um, game conventions. You know, I, I just mentioned that we, uh, just had OEGE. Um, and from what I hear, there will be a OVGE, which is the Oklahoma video game expo, which started in 2003 and we had them, uh, for four years in a row last year, they took a year off, but I think, um, from what I'm hearing now, there will be an OVGE, uh, sometime this summer, maybe this August. So, um, I may be talking about, uh, video game conventions. I've been to, um, uh, several different ones, uh, the OVGEs I've been to, um, uh, a couple, you know, some computer ones, and I've also been to um, CGE last year. So I may talk about that. I also uh, may be talking about uh, Photon, which is um, not necessarily game related. So if you don't want to hear about Photon, be sure and email me, and I won't talk about Photon. But um, there's a kind of an interesting thing going on. Photon was a, um, a laser tag. It was the first big um, laser tag arena back in the 80s. And they went out of business, and there's a guy here in Oklahoma who is building uh, a laser tag, and now he has run into financial trouble. It was set to open this week, and he's just sent out word that it's not going to be able to open due to uh, funds. But next weekend, he's going to open it for everybody to come and see, and they are going to actually try to have some games. Uh, so I, I will be going to that. That's going to be in Tulsa next weekend. So, um uh, you know, I'll have photon on the mind. So I, I may end up talking about that. Who knows? But anyway, uh, you know, I'm trying to keep these at around 30 minutes and I've already, you know, once again, I've gone over, but, uh, anyway, I'm going to wrap up, uh, episode four. So there we go. We talked about console copiers next week, uh, or in two weeks, we'll be talking about something else. So I hope you tune in. Uh, my email address is flack at robohara.com. So if you want to write to me about the show or if you have any requests for things to talk about, drop me a line. And um, with that, I think I'm out of here. So I will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. And boy, I was going to think of something witty to say. You waited this whole, you've been listening to this for 35 minutes and I should have something to say. I was going to say, um, I'll say, have a flaky day. (laughs) Have a flacky day, (laughs) and uh, we'll see you in two weeks.